Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome to the Sentimental Garbage Christmas Spectacular. My name is Caroline and I gave her a hi-ya and a hi-ya and I kick her, sir. And it could be worth a fortune if it belonged to her. It's Ella Risbridger. <laughs> Hi, Caroline. Now, I've just given a very jolly intro that implies it's going to be a uniformly jolly podcast, but it might not be. <laughs> I think we have to consider the possibility that this may be a, a tricky Christmas special. A yeah. fun mm-hmm. and uh, historical and... Uh, but not completely historical. No, historical and ahistorical. Yes. Um, but also potentially distressing Christmas special. Yes. Which is fun. A fun energy for Christmas. A fun energy. Um, so if you're kind of a new-ish listener to the podcast, every year Ella comes on for the Christmas special. And we've like covered a host of, of sort of things that now we started with. Um, Midford's was first. Then Kids Books. Kids Books. Then Little Women at one point. We've done another one. We've been... Oh, the the Efron universe. Oh, the whole Efron universe. That was a happy Christmas. What it tends to be is like these big kind of unwieldy subjects that um, can go on forever. And that if we were to pick... Like, for example, we, we could do a, like one episode on You Got Mail or one episode on When Harry Met Sally. But what's more interesting to me is like a big general conversation that feels like the thing is tangential to Christmas, but maybe not specifically Christmas, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And... Back in, like, every single year, we get to, like, December, like, 12th, and we're like, fuck, what are we going to do for the Christmas special? We have no idea. And then we just hastily come up with something, and it always feels like the perfect thing. And But this time, you, like, text me in, like, July, being like, I have the Christmas special for this year. I have the Christmas special. And it was Anastasia. Why? The Princess Anastasia. But please do not repeat. But please do not repeat. I think, well, I mean, you have to go all the way back to... I've never been in a band, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, Caroline and I were talking about the fact I've never been in a band because I really have very few musical talents or inclination to perform. You have a lovely singing voice. Thanks, Angel. And we made a little pretend band for ourselves mm-hmm. called Brand Name Adhesives. Brand Name Adhesives, yes. <laughs> this is the name of the band that Caroline and I will never be in. And I remember talking with you then about how our first album would be called Justice for Anna Anderson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in our friendship, there have been certain points where I thought we will be best friends for the rest of our lives. And that was one of them. Mm-hmm. Realizing that you cared as much of, about Anna Anderson as I do. Yes. And Anna Anderson is one of the names of the woman who turned up kind of early to mid 20th century, claiming to be the still alive, formerly believed murdered by Bolsheviks, youngest daughter of Tsar Nicholas of Russia, the last Tsar of Russia. And this woman turned up and was like, maybe I'm her. Who can say? Could be. Certainly seems like I'm her, but I'm not making any claims, but maybe I am. Also, I don't speak Russian. I kind of speak Russian. And, you know, during her lifetime, there was always this question. 
is Anna Anderson really Anastasia? Did all the princesses die? And I have thought about this story for a long time. I think when you're a kid, you think about it because there is the Fox movie, which is the only not Disney Disney princess. And she's mm-hmm. wearing a big coat and she's got a little dog and she does adventures. Mm-hmm. And a great soundtrack. And that feels like a very non-Christmas Christmas movie just because it's very cold and very snowy and there's a lot of grandeur in it. Snowy and gold. Yeah. The two Snow elements and of Christmas. Snow and gold. Yeah. So they made a movie about it in the 90s. What year was it, Carl? 1997. 1997. I was seven. You were five. I was five. And it's not a Disney movie, but it feels like it's trying to be a Disney movie. It was Mm -hmm. Fox's attempt to make a Disney movie Mm -hmm. and they really succeeded because it has a fabulous soundtrack and it has this princess on... Is she a princess? Who can say she's a princess? And she is wearing a huge coat and she has her little dog and she gets swept up in this plot to pretend she's the princess. But what if she really was the princess? And I think that's a very exciting story. And then you get a little older and you realise that it's true or not true or it's based on a true story. Based on a not true story. Based on a true story that is in itself an untrue story. Exactly. And what I have always loved about this is the many layers of myth that are all wrapped up in this mm. like snow and blood and gold package, mm. which is a very fairy tale sensation. And I'm, I was never particularly into fairy tales as a kid. Mm. I think that you've, like as a kid they felt very pat to me and then you know we, we've all read Angela Carter we, the yeah. retellings also then felt very pat very quickly <laughs> mm-hmm. but Anastasia is the fairy tale I can't put down yes yeah completely I, I feel the same way in that like my uh, love of Disney films as a kid was very much like I loved Aladdin I loved The Lion King I loved Mulan and like the Grimm's fairy tale reproductions were always like, oh, great songs, but kind of felt a little... I don't know, it just never attracted to me for reasons I don't even totally understand. And so for that for that reason, Anastasia was always my central princess. Like, I yes. had two of the Barbie dolls, which is a big deal. <laughs> I was I had, not allowed any Barbie dolls. But... I, had, I had the Barbie doll that had her like original orphan outfit, and I also had the Barbie with the big yellow dress, big goldy dress with the sash. Uh, I also had the music box. Like, I, it was an obsessive thing for me. My first, like, proper online screen name, which has followed me into my 30s now, was Kazaraline. So it's like Zaraline, basically, after the Tsars of Russia, because I became so obsessed with this myth. And it's interesting to me because, like, we're living in, like, 2023 was the year of the phrase, what's your Roman Empire? What is the, you know, period of history or like just a little section, this curio, this interest that you cannot put down. Like it's gotten to a point now in my life where like when I'm feeling a little drunk or a little stoned and a little sad and I'm in bed and I can't sleep, what I will do is look at colorized pictures of the Romanov sisters. (laughs) And this is why we're friends, because I also look at colorized pictures of the Romanovs, Um, which I think has a lot to do with Anastasia the movie, but also like I have a general thing for Victoriana in general. Mm-hmm. I've always liked that bit of history. I don't like it, but I come back to it. Like I mm. circle it and I don't really know what I'm looking for out of it. I find it very tricky and like like gorgeous in the old fashioned sense of the word. Like there's word, like there's a lot of depth in all the colours mm. mm-hmm. to look into. Victoriana Victoria Yeah. That whole bit of time. Mm-hmm. And I think Maybe that's where I was thinking about it first is this idea of like, oh, the royalty was cousins. <laughs> and, it, yeah. you know, as I've said many times, 
both on this podcast and elsewhere. My jam is very much fucked up family and huge house. All the money can't make them love each other, which is why I am interested in royalty, because what's more fucked up than royals? Exactly. And I think what it's interesting because this is our third episode, our third Christmas special about a fucked up family. So first Delicious. we had the Midfords, then we had the Little Women, and now we have the Romanovs. And I think, as you just said, I think people who are interested in studying royalty are often accused of romanticizing it. But I think, and may, maybe many people do, um, but I think what's more interesting is what you just said, is that every single family, um, no matter how famous or insignificant they are, are engaged in a practice of the public persona of the family versus the private persona of the family. And that has never more dramatic or more clear or more fun than a royal family, right? What a smart and good thing to say. <laughs> Thanks! Um, but I think I think you're absolutely right. It's that sense of what goes on behind the curtain yeah. and the differences. Today, what we're doing is, I'm, I'm like quietly and excitedly nervous about it because it's like, we're going to talk a little bit about the various movie iterations of this story. We're going to talk about the what really quote unquote happened. Um, we're going to talk about Anna Anderson. But I think what we mostly want to knot up and tie together is like, this is a story that has now been in the culture for over a hundred years. It won't die. Like, it, like it, you know, it, there was a movie in 1956. There was another movie in the 80s, a TV movie. There was the cartoon. The cartoon has since been made into a Broadway musical. It will never go away. And it will always be women who are kind of fueling it. And basically, like, what do we, as we explore each iteration of both the, the, the truth and the lie, and also the lies within the truth, the truth within the lies, the sort of literal Russian nesting dolls of this story, I kind of want to get back to, like, why do we love it so much? Why can't we let it die, you know? I think we are obsessed generally with frauds and fakes and fake heiresses. I mean, what's Anna Delvey but Anastasia, you know? Yeah. You know, a fake German heiress who's walking around the city being like, I want this, I want that, I'll open this, and you should know who my parents are. Like, speaking with her kind of Russian-German accent and everyone being like, do you speak Russian? Her being like, absolutely, don't ask me to speak it. <laughs> I can't. I won't do it for you. But I can, privately, because of my Russianness, And I... I think generally as a culture, we love the idea of someone pretending to be yeah. a princess or pretending to be an heiress and getting found out. Mm -hmm. I think heiresses in general are fascinating. I know that you have read and I think recommended to me the Laura Thompson book on heiresses. Mm, but I, fantastic. Yeah. I really kind of recommend this as kind of companion, I guess, companion reading. Yeah. Um, because we are obsessed with the idea of young women with money, young women who say they should have money. And I think that goes all the way back to kind of dowries and the worth of women. Mm -hmm. And I think the Anastasia story is probably the purest encapsulation of take me seriously. I am worth yeah. something. And it's, it's, it's a toy we can't put down. And it's also this fascination with female scammers, right? And I think what's really interesting... And what happened to Anna Anderson as she was like examined by various doctors and psychiatrists and is she lying and is she not? And this has happened a couple of times with female fraudsters over the years, which is that like doctors not valuing female intellect enough to allow for like a big enough brain that would allow for all this 
information and all these schemes to be happening. Do you know what I mean? So I think at one point there was a doctor who examined Anna Anderson and is like, no one who's this fucked up could be this devious. Like this woman is like obviously traumatized. She obviously, you know, is finding it hard to like, 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 like the dramatization of Anna Anderson has always been like, and this sort of like beautiful little vixen who's just like, I don't know who I am. But like the reality of the Anna Anderson person was that like she was quite unpleasant. She was like very maladaptive socially. She did fucked up things all the time in company. And people who examined her were like, no one this fucked up could also be this devious. And it's kind of this undervaluing of like female intellect at all. It's like, no, she's fucked up and devious. <laughs> Do you think that male scammers get the same I'm trying to think who are the great like male scammers who aren't like you know the Lehman Brothers or whatever you know like yeah well no what's interesting is like I mean I just read um, The Fraud by Sadie Smith oh I've not read it yet saving it for Christmas so the Tishborn claimant was like a little bit earlier than this and it was this uh, man who just surfaced out of nowhere having been to Australia and uh, he was like this random cockney who had lived in Australia for a few years and who kind of arrived uh, back in London saying, I am the heir to the Tichborn fortune, which was this like huge, huge fortune um, that uh, the the main heir was lost in a shipwreck. The mother had put out all these wanted posters, like reward for my son to be found. She never believed her son could possibly be dead. This rando shows up out of nowhere who like doesn't have any of the qualities of the aristocracy, can't speak French, which was his childhood language, all these things, but still manages to convince thousands of people and have like people raising money on his behalf, despite all of the evidence going to the contrary, that he was the heir to the Tichmorn throne. See, there's something you said there that I think is really interesting. I just want to pull up, which is the mother didn't want to, couldn't believe that her son could be dead, mm-hmm. which I think is a key element of all these kind of claimants and, and scammers. And, and scammers feels like such a harsh word for it, you know? I don't know. I think a huge part of the Anastasia myth, the legend, was was hope. The idea that these beautiful princesses, all four of them, it was the first time we'd had sort of kind of widely disseminated pictures of a royal family like mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, certainly in the UK, there had been lots of photographs of the four princesses on their father's yacht when it came to the Isle of Wight. They were cousins of the British princesses. Their colour pictures had been, like, seen. There were pictures in the newspapers of these yeah. four and they were taken by their father. Women. Like, they're the famously weak uh, last czar of Russia, Nicholas II, who was like, just liked hanging out with his kids and loved his German wife, who everyone thought was a spy. <laughs> and was just like, I, here's my kids skiing. Here's my kids on a picnic day. Here's my kids visiting England. And was disseminating this photography. Apparently the statistic is there was never any as much photography of a royal family until Princess Diana. Like, and this is the dawn of photography. This is like the dawn of this kind of celebrity. If we think of the 20th century as being the century that is primarily about images and the distribution of images and how that changes people's brains and how they think about people and celebrity and society forever, this, their patient zero of like, what does it mean to go from having portraits of people where you mainly see like one, maybe three <laughs> images of someone throughout their life to having like dozens of photographs of these little girls growing and up. And the immediacy of it, I think, yeah. as well. When you see a portrait, you know there's an intermediary between you and the famous person, you and the yeah. royal. When you see a photograph, you could take that photograph. You could be yeah. the person there. It, it, it's immediate. And so you have these four little girls who 
who grow up into kind of who grow I say grow up but they don't really grow up um as a child I remember thinking they were so some of them were so old when they died and now I'm like yeah. they were 20 to 21 22 yeah. so it's Tatiana Olga Olga Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia. And of course, Alexei, who's the sickly little boy at the end. Yes, everybody's yeah. little sickly pet. Yeah. Um, but I, as a child, was obsessed with the Four Sisters, obviously, has come up a lot for me on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I talk about it like therapy. Four Sisters actually come up a lot for me <laughs> on this podcast. But, you know, you do Little Women one year, you do Anastasia in the next year. Mm-hmm. It's going to come up that I'm the eldest of Four Sisters. Mm-hmm. And I, I love anything with Four Sisters. And I have always loved those Romanov sisters because they were the big pair and the little pair and in my family we are big two and little two mm-hmm. and they used to sign themselves Otma like yeah. O-T-M-A yeah. and just like as one name and people knew about this at the time this yeah. was not their likes and dislikes were known in like they were characters in people's lives and it's a very modern way of looking at the royals really yeah in the same way now that you know the British royals release like cute little tidbits about their children's lives in a way. Oh yeah, literally I saw on the Evening Standard yesterday, it's like the the royal family have gone to a carol service and like here's like here's the appropriate pictures. drinking hot chocolate or whatever, you know, like it's Yeah, just the right amount of personality Yeah. to make you think that you know them. Yeah. It's like every time they leak something that's like and little George went to a playground where he's quite mischievous and everyone's like, he is mischievous. <laughs> Actually, I think they think he's the somber one. I can't remember. No, the little one is the mischievous one. But they've all yes. got the personalities, which is what the Romanov kids had, right? Mm-hmm. Which was, and Anastasia was the cheeky one. The cheeky prankster, the, mis- the cheeky baby. The cheeky baby, the mischievous one, the little one. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that the Anastasia myth won't die is that people really wish that it one of them had survived. Yeah. And I think part of that is, you know, it was a whole way of life. It was a whole way of life that was removed. And I think we can probably talk about that, actually, in that, you know, when we, Caroline and I, last weekend, watched the 1956 yes. version of Anastasia, which is a bananas movie, really. I mean... It's a very odd movie. And what's odd about it is, like, if you're somebody who's like, you know, not that interested in classic movies. It's like not something you need to see. You know, it's not It's not like, oh my God, everyone run out. It's as good as Gone with the Wind. It's as good as like, it's a wonderful life. It, it's not. What it is, is is like, it has a lot of beats of very famous, iconic movies that we had at the time, like My Fair Lady and The yes. King of um, The King and I and that kind of, it even has Yul Brynner who was in The King and I. And it's like, let's, let's try and force this incredibly sad story into the stencil of a Hollywood blockbuster and it doesn't always work and it's a weird movie to watch but it's like the the good bits are so good and the bad bits are so confusing but it's like very affecting because it was made during a time where the, where the question mark was still over Anna Anderson yeah it opens with this kind of scrolling credit that's like the only person that can tell if these events are true if, if her story is true or not whether she's dead or alive is Anna herself mm-hmm and I think, I don't know, even though I know DNA testing means that we know for sure that Anna Anderson was not the missing Princess Anastasia, we know that there were four Romanov princess, princesses found in the, the pit. Yeah. They tested them against Prince Philip, as a fun fact for listeners, <laughs> testing corpses against Prince Philip to see if they were cousins. Weird. Fucking weird. Fucking weird. And that didn't happen until like the 2000s. Yeah. And even though we know that's true... There's, and also, it, it should really go without saying that I am not a not a great fan of uh, 
czarist absolute monarchies <laughs> as a rule times. but aesthetically you can't be beat <laughs> democracy's got a lot going for it but it's not as picturesque it's not picturesque it doesn't have as much jewel encrusted eggs no I know imagine if we were trying to do an episode about Tony Blair <laughs> I mean I would I would do an episode about the Blairs <laughs> I mean put, for, put it aside for another Christmas special <laughs> Sherry imagine. Blair um, that Christmas card the Tony Blair and Sherry Blair Christmas card I've never seen it Oh, we'll look it up after. Okay. It's unsettling. (laughs) Anyway, so I was talking about DNA evidence before I got on to the Blairs. Mm -hmm. And I think even when you know that A, if Anastasia had survived, she would have been dead for a long time by now. Mm -hmm. It still makes you be like, oh, but what if? What if one princess survived? Yeah. I think it's interesting that neither you or I were into fairy tales, but we're both into this very fairy tale story. Mm-hmm. You know, it is Cinderella. It's like, what if the sh- if the shoe fits? You know, it's it's literally Cinderella. I mean, in this nineteen fifty six movie, they have a silhouette of oh, what Anastasia's yeah. body would look like now if she had not been murdered ten years previously, painted on a board. Yes. So so the, the the story structure that we know from the cartoon was first sketched out in this 1956 movie. The cartoon takes an awful lot from this 1956 movie. I think the operative word there is sketched. I mean, they're... Yeah. The, the, it looks like someone trying to draw... Even though the film was made first, it looks like someone trying to draw the movie from memory. Yes. Yes. That's so true. That's very... Yeah, that's very true. Being like, yeah, and then if you just stand over there, and then I'm pretty sure that you walk by a river for a bit? I yes. remember that from the cartoon. And then there's a lot of snow for sure. But then, oh, then there's a grandma. Can you be the grandma? It, it feels it, like people it, trying to act out the cartoon. It's amazing to me that like, clearly somebody from Don Bluth's team was like, or maybe Don Bluth himself was like, I'm, I've just watched this incredibly sad movie with Ingrid Bergman uh, that's really complicated and very much about trauma. And uh, it has a kind of a weird ending. What about, what if it's a cartoon? <laughs> What if it's a cartoon, really, with a talking bat and like some very like Freddie Mercury anthems from a, a half dead Rasputin? And then we said yes. As a society, we were like, yeah, a whole generation of little girls are going to make their whole personality around this, including the ones sitting in this sound booth. Um, but like, it's so caught up in that mystery of like, is she? Isn't she? You have Ingrid Berman like meeting these con men. One of them being Yul Brynner at the beginning of the movie in I think Germany, she's about to kill herself, which is something that the real Anna Anderson tried to do several times. Um, at this point, I want to say, for trigger warning purposes, this is a violent story. There's going to be many violent things and discussions of suicide and and violence coming up. So maybe if that's not for you, tune out. I think we'll try not to be too graphic. Graphic, about it. but this is the reality. You know, um, yeah. the so that that's where it opens, and this kind of idea of like the con man preying on the young loon is like very consistent throughout every story of Anastasia that yeah. we've retold. Why do you think that is? I think because it gives us something to subvert, you know? Mm-hmm. You must start with the con man has all the power and this poor crazy lady has none. And then you have to realise it is the con man who is being conned. She fits exactly this silhouette of a teenager they have painted on yeah, they, in the basement of a Russian club they've painted on the walls a silhouette of a Russian teenager which would be her measurements had she lived which like how the fuck would you know that I'm glad they cut that from the cartoon it's creepy um, 
But I think what we're really looking at is what happens if she's right and they're wrong? What happens if she knows more than they do? Mm-hmm. What happens if the con man is himself getting conned by a princess? It's a, In some ways, it's a female power fantasy, isn't it? Mm. Of oh, being wow. like, you feel helpless. A man comes in and tells you he knows what you have to do. And you realise, actually, I can beat him at his own game. I am the princess. I am the person with the power. And without me, he has nothing. Mm. And I think there's something very delicious in that. Yes. I mean, the way in the 1956 movie, Anna Anderson, I can't remember what they call her in the movie. It's not Anna Anderson. They do at one point call her Anna Anderson, but yes. But this, this woman starts to remember things she couldn't possibly know. And the movie goes very hard on. Mm. I mean, it is her. You know, there's a part where one of her mother's ladies-in-waiting is uh, saying, oh, no, you could have learned these manners anywhere. Mm -hmm. And Anna says to her, I remember you. My mother hated when the servants servants wore wore lip stain. And I used to to tell on you and I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. And the lady-in-waiting breaks down because, of course... Who could have known? Who yeah. could have known that? And that's the other thing of like, and it it happens in the cartoon as well, where it's like, oh, Dimitri and Kelsey Grammer are like, <laughs> John Cusack and Kelsey Grammer are schooling Meg Ryan on like, and here's where you were born and here's this and like, here's all the things that you, preferences that we know about. Because again, we're, we're working with a time that had, there was so much information available. And then it's like, oh, then she suddenly comes out with these sudden recollections of like, that are all like sense memories of like smells and like private moments and things witnessed from the eyes of a child. Like every iteration goes hard on this. And it goes back again to this thing we talked about a minute ago, which is like the romance of the royal family is that it's the every family blown up. It's like every, everyone knows certain public things about a family, but only the insiders know the private things about the family yeah. and how... Um, naked and strange it is when somebody who you've made up your mind isn't one of us. Turns out it is one of us and you know all our intimacies and what do we do with this information? I think that's it, isn't it? It's the thrill of also, it's being a kind of voyeur within your own life. Oh. In the, well, you know, the fake Anastasia or the, the wannabe Anastasia, the Anna Anderson, is both one of us in that she's a regular person who knows what we know about the royals but she's also got these memories and she knows what it's like to be in there, to be inside. And I think that's very seductive as a feeling that you could be both inside and outside your own family. Yeah. Because in some ways, isn't that the tension? For me, I think that's... And I think maybe maybe this is why it's a Christmas story, is if you're an adult returning home at Christmas, you are both inside and outside the family circle. Oh, very good. Tying up. <sighs> It's we the, didn't think it was relevant to Christmas, but turns out it was all along. El Special Navidad. El Special Navidad. El Garbage de Sentimentale. <laughs> I can't speak Spanish. Can't speak Spanish. I'm sorry, Spanish speakers. I wish I spoke Russian, because then we could have said it in Russian. Mm. I don't speak any Russian. Um, yes, but I think this is part of it, right? Is this fantasy of being inside and outside the family at once, and inside and outside privilege at once as well because the thing about the cartoon i know we're hopping around here but the cartoon Mm -hmm. is very much like everyone can tell that the best costume that anna has in the movie is her massive coat and her dog and her hat Mm -hmm. she's not as cool when she's wearing a ball gown and that's why she has to leave (laughs) you know there's a real fantasy about rejecting yeah about i guess you start with a woman who's been rejected by society Mm mm-hmm 
in every telling of the Anastasia myth, and then you end with a woman who rejects society. Yeah. It's a power. It's it's all about power. It's always about power. And it's this thing as well that, like, and maybe this is another reason why we keep coming back to Anastasia, and particularly women love this story, is that it is kind of a makeover story. And we love a makeover story. It's a makeover story to an extent, but she does reject those the yeah. kind of ball gown and she goes yeah. off into the night. In, in, the in both versions. In both versions. I mean... What I think the 1956 movie does very well, I hope it's 1956, if not... It is, I have it written down here, it's 1956. Great. Is the trauma of everybody to whom Anna Anderson is saying, I am Anastasia. Yeah. The actual damage you can do by being like, and this is your relative. You know, the grandmother in the 1956 movie is simply devastated. Mm -hmm. She won't... She won't see... Anna Anderson, because she says that she sees one all the time. She's always seeing them. Mm. And there's something very real about grief there, isn't there? The the thing of being like, the kind of hope and the crushed hope of being like, what if you didn't die? Yeah. And I think the 1956 movie that I find very surreal is the fact that the Duke, the Duke who was supposed to, who would have married Anastasia had she lived, yes. is then like, hello, my dead ex-fiancé. How lovely to see you again. <laughs> And that's a weird moment. It's a weird part of this story that is so, so much remains part of the culture. Mm. That you're asking someone to come back from the dead in both a public and a private sense. Yeah. And the public want to believe it, but in private, it's it's a much weirder thing. You know, I think many listeners of your podcast will know that someone very close to both of us died quite a long time ago now mm-hmm. and I, I I think I speak for both of us when I say how weirded out we would be if he came back yeah it would be very trippy if someone turned up and was like hello I'm your dead ex-fiance I have returned we pick up where we left off 10 years ago and I think that's what the 56 movie does and that's what the cartoon has necessarily to leave out mm. but I think it is there I think you can feel in the cartoon this tension of I was dead and I am alive. Yeah. And and the thing is, well, that this... And in a minute, we should really get to, like... And here's what really happened. And here's how the the facts line up with the myths. Um, we haven't even talked about Rasputin. So much of... So much of the kind of story, which is, like... Again, it just, it's so fascinating to me that, like, a playwright in the 50s took this story that was would have been all over like the news his whole life and been like, okay, I'm going to wrestle this into like a My Fair Lady Pygmalion type of shape. Um, but also to, you know, to make sure that the uh, Lee character is likable, we're going to say like, oh no, she's going to reject all of it in the end because all she really cared about was her name and her family and having a sense of self. And the money means nothing to her because all she really wants is the man she loves, which is the con artist who <laughs> thought she was fake all along and was like conspiring to uh, trick a very old, sad lady <laughs> into giving him many millions of rubles. But why don't we go back to who the real Anna Anderson was and how this all happened in the first place. So going back to the real story of history, this is not a history podcast. This is a myths and feelings podcast. <laughs> but we're going to like get the sort of the broad story of the Romanovs and how and Anastasia and, and how the, it, this all began and ended. So Anastasia 
as we just said, the youngest of four kids, born in 1901, uh, is caught up during the Bolshevik Revolution. The uh, Romanov family are kidnapped and taken to various different places around the Russian border. They eventually end up in Ekaterinburg after several years of the revolution, kind of the October Revolution, sparking off and, you know, demolishing this old way of life and replacing it with the communist regime. These kids are sort of kept alive because they'll probably be useful and it will probably be worse to kill them. Because these are very, as we've discussed, very famous kids. These are very famous princesses. They've been kind of, the older ones have been helping in the war effort. The younger ones have been kind of very sweet. Yeah. And everyone knows who they are. And while the Tsarist regime is is failing, I mean, for a lot of good reasons, um, there's still a sense that these these children are connected to all the crowned heads of Europe. Yeah. They're probably politically worth something. Yeah. And they're there with their parents. They're, They're being held with their parents in a variety of... Houses that get smaller and smaller and shabbier and shabbier and further and further away from... For years, for like two or three years. Yeah. And I don't I don't think they ever thought that they were going to be executed. I really think that they were just getting going through a tough patch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about the Russian Revolution. I, I, I don't know enough about the French Revolution to know if it's the same, but there is this sense of trying to being like well we'll we'll, we'll go abroad because if you think mm-hmm. about russia particularly russian society at that time you know i'm i'm listening to anna karenina at the moment which i really recommend as a christmas listen maggie gyllenhaal it's fantastic oh it's wow i'm going to download it when i get out of here 30 hours and it's just gossip and niceness mm. not niceness but like gossip and people being in love and people having affairs but there's this moment where levin who's kind of the tolstoy stand-in i guess i i think he, yeah and he's listening to the woman he hopes will be his sister-in-law talking to her children in French, even mm-hmm. though she is Russian and her children are Russian. Mm-hmm. And the little girl comes in and is like, mother, where's my spade? I need my little spade. And the, mo- the mother says in French, I speak French, you must speak French too. Mm-hmm. And they have like stumbled through this conversation in French. And Levin is like, why would you bring your children up in such an artificial way? And Dolly's like, I've obviously thought this through a thousand times. Mm-hmm. They have to speak French. And what becomes really clear is, like, the extent to which the Russian aristocracy at the time consider themselves to be part of Europe. And that means being French and being English and speaking French and speaking English and speaking German and going to Germany and being incredibly, like, cosmopolitan, I guess. Feels like a very dated word, but maybe it's Mm. the, the one I mean. And the sense that these very connected children who are part of Europe, I think... I think they all thought, like, well, we'll have to live in Paris for a little while. Okay. Yeah, we'll go to Hungary, we'll go to Germany, you know. Yeah, Copenhagen, which is where the grandmother ends up because of, she's a Danish princess. And so these, this family are one day in 1918 um, executed very horribly in this uh, house in Ekaterinburg. Um, they're very famous. I think this is a detail that really captures the imaginations of incredibly macabre little girls. Yeah, I would say skip 15 seconds ahead in your podcast player if you're... If you're not into it. Not into it. Um, of the uh, the gems sewn into the gowns of the girls. Because again, they thought they were leaving. They thought they were going to go to Europe and they wanted to save 
their family was like, okay, we better have some stuff to trade if the aristocracy doesn't exist anymore. And so these jewels were sold into their outfits. The bullets bounced off them, which is something, a piece of that, like, a piece of lore that existed for so long and was one of the main things that, like, held up Anna Anderson of, like, here's why I didn't die. Um, then, I'm sorry, this is very horrible, the soldiers bayoneted the girls and Alexei and their parents. They were then driven out to a remote spot in the forest and thrown into a pit. And that is horrifying. But this is all happening in a Russia that is beginning to be cut off from the rest of the world, where there is a complete information blackout and where the rest of Europe, who has been seeing pictures of this family grow up alongside their own families for years, are in this thing of like, and I really do believe this and I have experience of this, as do you, of like, when you don't get a grieving period, when you don't get a funeral, when you don't get to see a body. It's why this is why heads of state are exhumed and put on, you know, like are, are yeah. put on display. People need to know they're really gone. You know? I think that's it. Um yeah, I mean after our friend our person died, I know that because there was no funeral and no body, we spent a lot of time being like, Yeah, but really? Are but you sure? really? Yeah. Are you sure not just like in maybe on an archaeological yeah. dig somewhere or like traveling archaeological or? dig was a big one for me <laughs> yeah i remember you you were really like yeah uh, i'm not sure guys i really feel potentially recurring uh, dreams of the archaeological dig and, and I, I remember telling this to somebody recently and she went oh so a tomb i was like oh yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> spooktacular spooktacular and I, I really hope that anyone listening to this podcast never has the experience of having someone they love deeply and then never getting a proper grieving process but there is a reason why funerals happen there's a reason why they feel weird there's a reason why we dread going to them and there's a reason why they're never as bad as we think they are because we really need to do this we really need funerals yeah and and the world needed a funeral for the Romanovs the world needed something that wasn't just and it's finished they're all dead Goodbye. Yeah. Now or they're not. Regime. There's an information blackout. We don't know. But presumably they're dead. We haven't heard a peep. Like, I just think the psychic effect of that is insane. Yeah. And I think then when someone turns up 10 years later and says, don't worry, they're yeah. not all dead. There's me. There's me. And the, the me in this case is a little woman who was born in 1886 called Franziska Shankowska. And she is someone who was born in East Prussia, who had an incredibly traumatic life, beginning with the sexual assault from her own father for years, uh, then going on to her leaving Prussia for Germany, uh, ending up at a munitions factory where on the line she, because she has blood poisoning from a recent abortion, drops a grenade, is very injured herself and also kills another man. <laughs> it's a bleak life. It's a fucking bleak life. Should we make it into a, I don't know, a cartoon for kids, maybe with some <laughs> songs and a talking bat? And after this, she's like wandering around a Germany that's on the brink of World War One. She's going in and out of asylums. She refuses to tell people her name because she's had a fucking awful life. Some, some, so she, at one point she is like, put next to somebody in a bed who is kind of like distantly aristocratic and is kind of on a mad one herself <laughs> because she's in an asylum in Germany and she's like, you're Tatiana, you're Tatiana, I know you're Tatiana. 
She never, con- she neither confirms nor den- denies the accusations that she is Tatiana, who is the oldest Romanov girl. But somehow, this person who's next to her in bed. Again, there are many podcasts you can listen to uh, if you want to learn more about dates and names of this thing. I'm very much this is friend of a friend gossip retelling. <laughs> Think of it that way. Um, that person manages to get somebody who's tangentially related to the Romanovs to come in. That person says, this is not Tatiana. Why have I wasted a day of my life? At this point, Francisca says, I never said I was Tatiana. And then somebody says, well, are you Olga? And she says, no. And then they say, are you Anastasia? And then she sort of says nothing. It's a lot at the very beginning. It's a lot of assumptions based on things she is not saying. And because there are so many people who miss these girls, who knew these girls, and who want desperately to know that this way of life is not over... By virtue, they're like, she's cold reading them. She yeah. is like, they are telling her information and she is storing it because she's a clever, clever person. And I think you cannot underestimate the desperation of the Russian aristocrats who have just survived, yeah. who are now scattered across Europe. They have no money. They are selling kind of jewels, kind of in dribs and drabs that they've managed to smuggle out in kind of hems of coats and you know, dog stomachs and all the rest of it. That, that's, that's a direct what... reference to the Eva Ibbotson book, A Countess Below Stairs, Indeed. which if you like the sort of Anastasia cartoon, you will friggin' love this book. We did an episode with uh, with Laura Wood. It's it's a great book and that is what I was thinking, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I do think that, that thing of being in the Russian club in, I think it's Belsize Park, mm-hmm. where it's like, none of us have any money, but we're all counts and countesses and they're all working as like, it's like the princess is working as a scullery maid and yeah. the count is driving taxis or whatever yeah but we're all here preserving this way of life in this small little space in yeah Belsize we're all Park. spending every penny we earn on like a small tin of caviar which is yeah people love faded glamour anyway mm-hmm. but to those people the idea like a princess that would be oh we would not be dead yeah we would not be preserving something that was dead we would be preserving something that was alive yes and we would be doing this for a reason you know I think about this a lot because I think about, like, the French people who call themselves, like, I'm the rightful king of France. And it's like, man, okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, I once worked for a French family who were very keen on their aristocratic roots and they had, like, a huge family tree. And it was like, mm-hmm. well, you were never one of the main ones or you would be dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you've got all these kind of dribs and drabs of people who are just like, I actually... Because people higher up than me died, I must maintain this title. Yeah. And it's like, there's something very, again, pathetic, but in the very Victorian sense of like, you feel pathos for, I feel a deep Mm -hmm. pathos for it, for these people Mm -hmm. just being like, no, no, I am a count. In a world that no longer exists, I have worth. Mm -hmm. And so they're setting up these kind of fake courts, essentially, these fake things of being like, we are the Russian aristocracy even though yeah we will never go back to russia the russian people have ousted us yeah we are now scattered all across europe living on people's charity yeah a few of us have like property and jewels enough that we're maintaining a high standard of life but not as high yeah another great movie if you're interested in this is the 1939 movie ninochka starring greta Gar- starring Greta Garbo, which is one of my favourite rom-coms to ever exist, but it's very much about the white Russians still living in Europe and what the current Russians, the red Russians, feel like that they owe them. Um, It's the most perfect rom-com ever. I think it's on a 
it goes toe to toe with any fucking Nora Ephron. You would love it. Anyone who listens to this podcast would love it. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, but little advert for Garbo there. I just not heard of a little someone called Greta, Greta Garbo. Garbo. But I think what is interesting is the 1956 film, on which one assumes mm-hmm. the 97 cartoon has to be based on because there are too many things that there's too many yeah. moments of weird commonality. I hope they write in and tell us like. I hope they're listening to this podcast. Oh, Don Bluth is listening. He might be, Caroline. You don't know. You're very famous now. <laughs> Don Bluth. Um, but that a 1956 movie is based on a play. Mm-hmm. The script is from a play. And you can so tell. There's a lot of people going through, in and out through doors, mm-hmm. coming in, coming out. And the interesting thing about a movie based on a play, when that movie is about kind of... It's like a film set with the script of a play about a man teaching a woman to say certain words and dressing her up and saying, you will act as this character mm-hmm. in this court that is also full of people pretending that this set is real. Mm-hmm. There's so many layers of reality yeah. and acting to it that maybe maybe it kind of provides the necessary cushion for trauma. Maybe it gives us a safe space to think about trauma because there's so many layers of pretend between us and the pain. This is the thing. It is, again, the the Russian nesting dolls of, of pretense and um, pomp and ceremony thing because it's like this person, but, and, and by this, at this point, the sort of the, both the myth and the reality is true. This person who is claiming to be the Princess Anastasia, the Grand Duchess Anastasia, um, it needs to convince all of us, the last remaining members of the Russian aristocracy, the white Russians, that she is real. So she can both fit into and lead our our expat society who are, as you said, representing this, like, have created this fake court, essentially, in other countries to sort of make themselves feel like there's still something to protect. And so it's like, They've created a fake world that has no relevancy anymore because they can't go back to Russia. They can't actually have their kingdom anymore. And so they're like, okay, are you... We've created a fake thing, but we think you're faker. (laughs) You know? You're even faker than we are. (laughs) Yeah, there's something... There's a weird... It's not quite a devil's bargain, but it's like, you've got to pretend we're real and Mm -hmm. we'll consider pretending that you're real. It's all very... There's lots of kind of private trades happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because when the fake Anastasia, or maybe the real Anastasia... (laughs) Fuck DNA. I want to believe. Fuck DNA. DNA ruins everything. It's a good story. Mm. Let it live. We need to believe in that. Like, fakes are going to keep happening. Fake heiresses will happen as long as there is no women and money. Um. Which actually, you know, makes me think about, like, people who turn up pretending to be missing kids. Mm-hmm. Like the Maddie McCann, there was the Polish recently, Maddie McCann Over fake. the summer, there was a fake Madeleine McCann who had arrived from nowhere, who was Polish. Uh, that And that was, like, immediately I thought, Anastasia, it's so strange. To be the missing girl, the probably dead missing girl. Yeah. To be like, please love me. Yeah. There's a line in that 56 movie where it's like, the love you want belongs to one who is dead. And I think that the grandmother says it, maybe. Yeah. And it's like this, you know, she says, like, the love you want belongs to one who is dead. Wanting a dream doesn't make it true. 
Mm-hmm. She's very brave of the grandmother, but she does not stick to that. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> she really quickly changes her mind on that front. Yeah. Front. But I think there is something in it about it being about the money and the love, about the idea there's a store of money and love mm. for these missing girls. And if you turn up, you will belong somewhere. Yes. And that's very, again, another very seductive idea is that if you don't feel loved enough, there is, like, it's actually quite simple. It's quite communist. It's like to each according to his, uh, you know, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Like, this grandma's got a lot of love going spare. Yeah. This woman, this, this woman yeah. needs a lot of love from a grandma. Together in Paris. <laughs> Together in Paris. And you say, like, who's it hurting except, I guess, quite a lot of people. Because Yeah, because it is this thing of, like, the world needed closure and the world needed to believe that, like... And as well, if you think of, like, we're hurtling further into this very crazy 20th century that is full of, like, war machines, you know? And, like, new sort of societies and new classes and new ways of doing things and industrialization and, like... All these new scary concepts, new and media, and new media, and we're pulling away from all these things, and like, and I can imagine for many people, as with now, like at a certain say, point, hundred years later, it's like it feels too fast and too much for people. There are bizarre parallels, and I think this is also what's interesting about a historical story that that you want to keep retelling. Yeah, is it forces you to see how little people change and how the world is constantly changing, but also we're just doing the same things over and over again you know the world is hurtling in it you know it's the 1920s that russia is in total turmoil and has killed a whole bunch of people uh Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes they say it's for a good cause but other people are saying it's a very bad cause um Mm -hmm. and you know there is the world is full of destruction and death and lots of people are dead and lots of people have recently you know lost somebody and there's all this new media so we're fi- we're seeing images and counting numbers mm-hmm. and we're f- seeing news from all around the world in a way that we never had before and people are yeah. processing all of this one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And it's same. It's the same thing a hundred years later. It's like it's different because in the in the in the specificities of and now we have little phones in our pockets that show us like, you know, pictures of kittens next to pictures of children dying, and that is doing new things to our brain. But that what was happening a hundred years ago, that was doing new things to their brains. Exactly. I mean know? if you've never if your knowledge of world politics prior to the Victorian period, prior to newspapers, prior to photographs, mm-hmm. 
has been basically limited to what you hear from people you know. Yeah. And like, maybe sometimes one of them has been abroad. Yeah. And you're suddenly like, oh, for one penny, I can see a picture of the Russian princesses and I can read about what's happening in, you know, South Africa and I can know all these things. That is going to break your brain in the same way that now being like, oh, I see this is my friend's new baby and this is a, a... picture of someone some total stranger's dog and here are some maimed babies and uh, well i guess we just keep looking at all of those and trying to formulate ways to speak you can see why we are confused and you can see why they were confused and hungry for information hungry for something that felt like hope i i felt like hope and it felt like to these people to the contemporary people of the early 20th century that like maybe we're not living in a war machine. Maybe there is still a romantic world full of like princesses and courtly manners and big ball gowns um, that we can still struggle to protect, right? I think so. And I think it's romantic even if... I think, again, it's this fairy tale thing of even if it goes against your personal politics, mm. which I think, you know... At the time, there was a lot of extreme politics in the 20s. In the mm-hmm. After the First World War, there was a lot of extreme politics. And on to the far left, to the far right, obviously. Mm-hmm. We know how that turned out. As anyone who uh, has studied GCSE history will be able to tell you, the <laughs> roots of the Second World War are firmly in the first. Sorry, we're just uh, having some champagne because that's, that's the Christmas special that's vibe. Okay. Even though yeah, yeah. It was, this is uh, incredibly serious but very satisfying Christmas special. <laughs> very intellectually satisfying Christmas special. But I think, in some ways... Cheers, babe, by the way. <laughs> Cheers, pal. Happy to the, to the Princess Anastasia. But please, please do not repeat. repeat. But I think, actually, in many ways, this is what made it a very interesting idea to me for a Christmas special. Mm-hmm. It's very it's juicy. It's very full of, like, glitter and gold, but it's also full of struggle and pain and how do we, how do we process those big traumatic feelings. And I think... In some ways, that is what all our Christmas specials have been about. You think about Mm -hmm. Little Women Mm -hmm. and how the minute we scratched the surface of Little Women, it was very much like, oh, God, war, war, civil war, trauma, death, children dying. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Hummels are dead. Everybody's dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've all got no money. Beth's dead. Beth's dead. Father could die at any time. Oh, and the cats have died. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And now I must marry this old, old man because my girlfriend, Laurie, doesn't, (laughs) you know. But, you know. It's fl- it's fun, but it's also pain. Mm-hmm. Nora Ephron, I mean, Sleepless in Seattle, a Christmas movie about stalking a widower. <laughs> Correct. Um, you know, and I think children's books, mm. all of them. Are about death. All good children's books are about death. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the Mitford Sisters, which was our first Christmas special, it's just like, what if you had a bunch of sisters and some were Nazis? Mm. <laughs> What if some were good and some were bad, but everyone disagreed on which ones? Also, you had one brother who was dead. Yeah. Very uh, Romanov. Very Romanov. I think we are very drawn to these stories that that kind of deal with the essential human conflict of the world is very beautiful and also very terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... And how can we make stories that are big enough to hold all of it at once? And you know, like, Christmas, midwinter, whatever kind of happens, whatever you do at this time of year, it's always about being like, 
there is so much darkness. Mm. Mm. There is so much darkness. Where is the light? Yeah. How, I, how many fairy lights can we put in our homes to distract ourselves? From at least one more string. The fact that it's three o'clock and it's pitch dark. Exactly. But like in the kind of Christian Christmas story, in like the third verse of every carol, it gets pretty bleak. Like, we three kings go so fast into sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, locked in a stone-cold tomb. God, I have not been paying attention to that carol. Oh, that's verse three. Myrrh is yeah. is. I mine. mean, even to, to make it a bit more contemporary, like Fairy Tale of New York, like one of the b- most beloved Christmas songs of all time and one of the bleakest. Yeah, I think, and I think... And, and, and to bring it to, back to where we are today, I could have been someone, well, so could anyone. Well, so could anyone. And that's what Anastasia is. It is kind of like, it's very much a rags to riches story about female lying. <laughs> like, but I think that's actually interesting, isn't it? I could have been someone, well, so could anyone. That is the opposite of the royal yeah. system. Yeah. And so in some ways, Anastasia kind of props up this absolute autocracy, this monarchy, because, of course, it kind of feeds our fascination with... With, with with the system mm-hmm. but in other ways it undercuts it so severely because it's constantly being like well if you knew the inside secrets would you be royal too mm. could anyone be royal if they knew the right secrets like what it's again it's the public and the private it's like what makes the royals royal what makes the princess the princess and there's almost nothing more destabilising to the idea of an absolute monarchy than someone asking that question of like, well, why are you? Yeah. You think you're someone. Well, so could anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, so could any. And I remember one of the wisest, most galaxy brain takes I heard during uh, the Queen's death was... Go on. Which, was that this year or last year? Last year, last year. Don't last year, okay. Um, was... We, I was talking about like the insane pageantry kind of thing and you said something to the effect of there has to be insane pageantry because otherwise everyone would feel very foolish that they worshipped an old woman for 80 years. I love doing this podcast with you because so often you're like, I heard a great thing the other year and it turns out to be me in the past being smarter than I am. Yeah, but that thing of like, for yeah. in, or, in order for royalty to keep existing, particularly in a world that is like so media literate that it's like, well, we understand now that like, this is not a world of Holbein portraiture where we're getting oil paintings of people we never see but who control us. We see a lot of them and it's managing the balance of like pageantry, pageantry, I basically live next door to God and look, here's Prince Louis giving the finger to John Bon Jovi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, you have to do the pageantry, especially when someone dies because that's the time you most need the machine to kick in. The machine of fairy tale, the machine of belief. Mm -hmm. Otherwise people will be like, Oh, okay. I guess the old lady is 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 just dead like normal. Yeah, because even the most um, like monarchy friendly people in this country would still, if you polled them all the week the queen died and asked them if they wanted the monarchy to continue, most of them would have been like, eh. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And because the monarchy is a machine that has existed for thousands of years, I don't know. I was always a bit skeptical when people were like, "It won't last after the queen dies." It's like they're really tenacious. These people. Yeah. They They've survived worse than the this. Fuck on. And as far as I can see, it simply has just rolled right on over. Mm-hmm. Like a whole bunch of scandals, a whole bunch of everything. Always. That's what the royals do. Scandal, scandal, scandal. They've always done it. They cling on. They, they're, they're very sticky people. <laughs> 
people they're very have, sticky people people who have power love to hold on to it and i i think that you need those big stories to keep them going but also the anastasia story kind of lets us have our cake and eat it it gives us the pageantry. It gives us the gold. It gives us the glitter. But it also gives us the thing of being like, well, who said you could be in anyway? What if this crazy street rat yeah. emerges from nowhere and knows all your secrets? So so to continue with Anna Anderson, where we left off, she convinces an ever-amounting supply of white Russians that she and people who are friendly to the white Russians that she is... Anastasia and she collects more information because and what seems to be the pattern of behavior is that she will kind of fall under somebody's kind of care for a while she will stay in their awesome house she will go through their libraries and through their photo albums and collect as much information as possible she will be incredibly rude to everyone until she either a alienates them so much they ask her to leave <laughs> or b um, she makes enough slips that it becomes very clear that she is a fraudster and there's a couple of instances which are dramatized a lot in both movies of like here's somebody who worked at the royal court and like she's here to see you and there are instances of her convincing them and there are instances of people being like absolutely get fucked this person is a rando <laughs> which again very compelling but what i find very interesting and this is actually covered really well in the c word podcast hosted by Alyssa bennett and leah dunham which i really recommend to anybody it's on luminary um is like did she know she was lying? Intriguing. So this is somebody who is raped by their father, who is then uh, has an illegal abortion, gets blood poisoning, is put in a munitions factory, drops a grenade on somebody, at a certain point works at a prisoner of war camp like farming asparagus. That's just a chapter is beaten and raped by people there also. Like, it is trauma on trauma on trauma. Trauma that, like, physically and mentally probably wasn't that dissimilar to the real Anastasius. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In terms of completely unstable, like, um, complete violence. And so she becomes... Also violence from people you formerly trusted as well. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the question is... I, yeah, I did all of this compound to a person that is so brittle and so traumatized that when she was fed enough information, she was clever enough to be like part of her like human need to survive was like, yes, yes. And yes. And to me being Anastasia. And at what point did that just take over and become her believing it herself? I think people have quite different relationships with reality. And uh -huh. I say this as a person who has an incredibly fragile relationship with reality <laughs> go on well i'm very easy to trick i'm mm -hmm. very gullible but not enough i'm not very fun to trick because if someone's like if someone tells me something is untrue i'll be like oh yeah i guess i just remembered it wrong mm -hmm. like i quite often you know i think it's why i write books is because i'm just like ah. You know, I think memoirists need to have quite a flimsy relationship with reality because mm -hmm. otherwise you would spend your whole life being like what was the exact truth? Mm -hmm. Which is impossible. Like if you write a memoir, you write, you're writing fiction. You're writing yeah. self-insert fan fiction about your own life. <laughs> I really believe it. Mm. And, and if enough people told me I was the Princess Anastasia and that I had invented my whole previous life, I'd probably be like, oh, fuck, did I? Yeah. Am I? I? I mean, these people seem like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. 
that time where that guy died next to me, maybe that was my dad? Maybe. Maybe that was my dad and I've just put it into a munitions factory because that's easier for me to cope with. Yeah. But, like, I know people who have a very strong grasp on reality who would absolutely be like, no, I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. But I know for myself that if powerful people, enough powerful people told me something, yeah. I would probably be like, oh, wow. Well, okay. And if it was also to your complete advantage and your, yeah. like, further to your survival and having a nice life was to you agreeing to this. Yeah. And helping it along at every juncture that you could. I I can see that. I can see why you'd go through the photo albums of to be like, was this me? And to her, she thinks she's jogging her memories, but actually she's creating memories. Exactly. And the thing is, you know how easy it is to put a false memory in someone's head? Unbelievably easy. You know, people remember stuff that didn't happen constantly it's like that thing of the bystander effect like if you ask yeah. the witness effect sorry so if you ask like 10 people what just happened they will all tell you something slightly different and often those stories will be completely contradictory your memory is not good no your memory is a wikipedia page and it can be edited by anybody memory is fallible and i believe that if you do enough trauma to a person their memory is exceptionally fallible mm. You know, there's literally studies been done about PTSD and how it completely fucks your long and short term memories. Mm -hmm. It's literally, I mean, I'm going to get this wrong. There are lots of books about this. You know, you have probably read The Body Keeps the Score if you're listening to this podcast. Um, But studies that show that when you're asking people to remember an event that gave them PTSD, Mm -hmm. that memory is totally misfiled. Misfiled? Yeah. I mean, someone wants to explain it to me, like, when you sleep, all of your memories get, like, from the day, get roughly organised into, like, a huge filing cabinet. That's nice to think about. I know, isn't it? (laughs) And when something is PTSD, it is misfiled. It doesn't get put into long-term storage in the filing cabinet. It's always, like, on top of the filing cabinet or, like, jammed in whatever else you want to look at. Mm -hmm. It's, like, jammed in with a bunch of different other sensations and stuff. It's never, like, neatly filed away. Yeah. So you get nightmares because your brain's like, ah, not in the right place. I have to process this again. Mm. And then you get flashbacks because you're like, I don't know, you hear a smoke alarm going off and you're like, ah, that's an intensive care alarm. Okay. And it, and you're like, you, your brain can't reach for like smoke alarm and be like, I know what this is. I guess I better get on a chair and hit it with a broom and like fan the hob. You're just like, panic 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 because Mm -hmm. your brain is reaching for smoke alarm and instead is getting ICU alarm Mm -hmm. and I don't know is it too much of a stretch to think that Anna Anderson was like loud sound pain trauma I don't know what that is yeah does it take away from her cleverness though are we doing her a disservice Mm. to say maybe she just really thought she was a princess (laughs) It's interesting because if you the in sort of new new work that covers her very early life, it's um it's always about how the, she's this kid, she's growing up in like a very peasanty atmosphere in uh East Prussia. She's a reader. She's always hiding places and she's reading and like because she's like being abused by her father, there's also this kind of grooming relationship going on that's like she's too special and too clever to do any of the work the rest of my children are doing. So I'm going to 
give her these advantages while also assaulting and abusing her. Which is obviously, you know, tales all the time in terms of how child abuse works, of like elevating the child and isolating the child by telling them that they're incredibly special and also creating a prison of their own specialness so that they can't talk to anybody about what's happening to them because they're so isolated. And so we know this is an incredibly bright person. It's interesting, isn't it? In and out of the family at the same time. Yes, yes. You know, she's suffering as a child. She's being abused as a child. And she's also being removed through that process of grooming from the family. She's in, she's out. It's like Anna Anderson. Yeah. It's yes. the public yes. and the private. She's kind of having to learn to do both at once, to be both, you know, to be both the child of her parents and the victim of her parents. Yes. And by the time her, her father dies, she's basically run out of town by her own mother, who then remarries quickly and is never kind of never really bothers with her again. And the next time she has any relationship with her blood family is many years later when she's at this point living in America because every aristocrat in Europe has both housed her and (laughs) been completely fucking (laughs) fed up with her shit. Um, She's then moves on to America and and becomes an industry there. You know, there are songs written about her. Ingrid Bergman pays her for the rights to her life. It's the first bit of her own money she's ever had. Um, she gets married to like a local historian, genealogist, rich guy. I do feel like that's very compelling. Yeah. Her life story writes were the first bit of her, like the first bit of money she had came from selling her life. Yeah. Her own money came from co-opting the life of another person. Yeah. But also Ingrid Bergman's co-opting hers. And it is very fascinating to me as I think particularly as a person who writes memoir, Mm -hmm. And a person who writes kind of historical fiction in some ways, this sense of life rights mm. and whose life rights are you selling? You know, we have been trying to figure out film and TV stuff for Midnight Chicken for years. literally years since it came out. And one of the key sticking points is always whose stories are these? Mm-hmm. Whose rights have to be signed away? Whose stories are we telling? And like the words life rights come up a lot. And I find that very fascinating. It's like now handing over someone else to tell your story. It's another layer of the, it's another Russian doll, isn't it? Inside Mm -hmm. this thing of now you sell me your life rights so we can make a play, so we can make a movie about how you pretended to be someone to a court of people for a country that no, so no, so like con men, con men who are, hoping to pretend to you that they're good in that they're good people so that they can dress you up you know there's that bit where you'll brinner essentially demonstrates his total power who's like if you don't do this correctly i'll make you into a cigarette girl in one of my clubs and it's like oh i could dress you up as anything yeah it's just layers of dollies yeah dolls on dolls on dolls on life rights on movie rights on playwrights on you know on a fabricated story about yeah and also Maybe this is a step too far, but I'm I'm going to go with it. It is, after all, Christmas. Um, there is an argument, I think, for the entire world of the Russian court, as it was in Russia pre-war, being a fabrication. It was this kind of portrayed as this like very civilized, very sophisticated, very cosmopolitan mm. place where you know everyone read and everyone went to the opera and everyone loved culture and everyone like and the ballet, the ballet, and also kind of thought about. Like the feudal relationship Mm -hmm. is itself a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. The idea that like 
The peasants love their master, and they love to work with him. They are good and fair. They are good and simple people, and the master is good and fair. And that know, being a total lie, a total lie of being like, I don't know. Maybe this is because I'm listening to Anna Karenina, but there's a lot about like Levin being like the humble simplicity of the peasant, the mm-hmm. honest and mm-hmm. decent life of the peasant, and it's like, oh man, so many of them are dead. Like yeah. the life expectancy is so brutal and short, and this whole sense of a gracious court is built on this very rotten underpinning, mm-hmm. which inevitably leads to its downfall. And I do think that that layer of falsity, that kind of essential duplicitousness of an absolute monarchy on a kind of working on a peasant feudal base is the lie that leads to all these other lies. The whole thing is pretend. Yeah. And what's so sort of fascinating is that like on one end of this scale, we have the real teenage girl who was murdered in a random house outside of Russia or on the edges of Russia. And then on the other, we have this person who, while not being Russian herself, is a victim of a society that crushes people, you know? She is under the fucking boot of history and society of, like, you were an abused farm girl and then you who tried to have a, a kind of a shot at an urban life in, in, like ended up in a factory explosion that almost killed you like, this is somebody who was very much a victim of the kind of world the Romanovs were trying to preserve which is where poor people don't matter and can be written off anytime you want yeah you know these are the idyllic honest lives of the farm people yeah and I just think that's interesting I think there's a it's just this it's like an M.T. Escher painting, you know, it like just goes round and round and round in a loop. Like you think you're going up the stairs and in fact you're going down the stairs. Yeah. It's just like, what is real? What is truth? And I wonder why, to come back to the question we mentioned right at the start, that is one reason we are so obsessed with it. Mm. It's because it really gets down to the essential nature of like, what is real mm-hmm. and what is fair? Mm. Like, what is power? Who gets to have it? Who gets to wield it? How yeah. do they wield it? Who gets crushed by it? And I think those questions, if you think about little kids, if someone does an impression of a kid, they will almost always go to, it's not fair. Yeah. Little kids are obsessed with fairness. And obsessed with lying. Fairness and lying and power mm-hmm. and trying to wield those things. Mm. And, you know, is it too much of a stretch to say that that's what people do? Like, we tell stories, we make stuff up, we lie. Mm-hmm. In attempts, essentially, to wield power. And this is one of those rare stories, which is not a fairy tale, so it can kind of grow with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you start off being like, you know, dancing bears and painted, paint, wings. painted wings, little music box and nice princesses in their pretty dresses and everyone gets restored to the throne. And then you can move on to, oh, wow, it's real. There were four sisters. Yeah. And a boy. <laughs> and a boy. No one cares about the boy. Except for the Russians who cared about the boy... Very much. Very much. Much more. But you know what? That's something kind of fascinating, isn't it? Is that, like, the boy is haemophiliac. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that's, like, carried in the blood. Mm. And this is all about, like, royal blood and tainted blood and who gets to be royal. Mm. And the DNA evidence tested against Prince Philip is very much like... No, but 
Did they have royalty in the bones? Like you, Prince Philip. You've got royal blood. When you think about what that blood has actually meant through history, yeah, it it's means not good. Sickness, disease, weakness, you know. Sickness, disease, weakness, and, you know, getting bayoneted to death in a weird house in your Katrinburg. Mm. I don't know. But then it's this thing of, like, it's this interesting riff then when we get the, the in the, you know, Francisca slash Anderson slash Anastasia story of, like, burning your credibility over the space of about a decade in Europe because you are basically burning out the dynamite string on how much people still care about this. Mm -hmm. And the more time that passes, the more people move on, the more we have new concerns, the more, the less compelling she is as a uh, person to sponsor. But we're now getting to the point where we're in the, the late twenties and she's like, okay, the aristocracy are no longer a concern for me. What is a concern for me is selling my story to Americans. And so it's like it's like this weird shift of like, now we're deep in the 20th century. Now people are going to the movies. It's not just about like seeing photographs anymore for a penny. It's like people are going to the movies. There are like silent movies being made already about this. What was it called again? The Woman Makes the Clothes? Or The Clothes the Make clothes, the Woman? Clothes Maketh the Woman. Clothes Maketh the Woman, which is like the first cinematic impression of this story. So she moves over there and she starts becoming like a celebrity over there. There are songs written about her. It's sort of this thing of like the depending on the endless appetite for Americans for the kind of cultural seat that is Europe of like, that's where they have royalty, even though most of it doesn't exist anymore. It's why we still have a million Christmas movies that are about like lost princesses of made up European nations every Christmas. Belgravia. Just ta talented bakers finding out that they have an identical twin sister who is the princess of Belgravia. But you know, like a lot of royals go to America. A lot of royals who are not going to be king or queen of a European country move to America. I mean, obviously, Prince Harry is the obvious one. Mm -hmm. Prince Harry, who I think in the UK was always kind of seen as like cheeky chappy. He says a naughty thing. Mm -hmm. He's not serious. He's the fun guy. And like much of what he appears to be doing in America is being like, actually, I'm I'm a real prince. I'm a philanthropist. I'm a philanthropist and a real guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in America, that's not important because he's being a, a, a British royal. And I think the same is true of some of the Swedish royals. Mm -hmm. I think so. There's certainly one of the Scandi royals is uh, married to like a faith healer and they live in America doing like faith healing workshops. Right. Out of just like royalness. I mean, let us not forget Meg Cabot. Like the Princess Diaries. The Princess Diaries. And a vastly successful book series, which I believe is still ongoing-ish. Yeah about finding out that you're the princess of a European country. There is a hold there. There so is a, There's you, a market there. Do you think Anastasia is the reason we have all these stories? The reason that we have the Princess Diaries and the reason why every Christmas there is 10 more Hallmark movies about a talented baker who finds out she's identical with the princess of a European nation? It's interesting, isn't it? Is Anastasia the cause or is she just a, the first symptom? Is she mm. patient zero of this phenomenon? Although she's not patient zero, is she? Because of course we have this kind of happening, this kind of claimant, this kind of mm -hmm. I'm a European beauty mm -hmm. happening. I wonder whether, I think it's more likely to be patient zero. I think the reason we're still interested in Anastasia, who, like, let's be clear, this story was debunked. Mm -hmm. 
even at the time, this story was people had a lot of people being like, no, yeah. I, I don't think so. And still, there are people who are passionate about how Francesca was the real Anastasia. Justice for Anna Anderson. Justice for Anna Anderson. Let her have it. Let, Let her, her keep it. She it. worked hard enough. <laughs> she did. I mean, she worked really hard and she was psychically alone with with this, you know? And, uh, but also, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. Who gets power? Why do they have it? Who lets them keep it? These are the big questions you should always ask when you run up against anyone with power is like, who gave you this power? Yeah. How are you using it? Who are you using it against? Who are you using it for? And it's like, how did Anna Anderson get any measure of cultural power at all as a like an abused, you know, exploded farm girl from Poland? Exploded farm girl from Poland. How she got power was by using her trauma in clever and interesting and thoughtful ways to con love out of people, love and somewhere to stay. Mm-hmm. I do find it hard to condemn her. I think there will always be part of me that wishes that we had just let her be the Princess Anastasia. I know. Because then what really happened was that she married this guy who was deeply passionate to like about, about restoring her to the Roman off throne. He seemed like a great little guy. I can't remember his name, but I saw an interview. Um, and... Then I think she outlived him. She ended up living alone as a hoarder who, among physical objects, she also hoarded pets, particularly cats, which is like, no, come on, Anne Anderson, you're more than a cat lady. But she, you know, the the, the last kind of like mark of her in the world was the police report her neighbours filed about her dozens and dozens of cats that had to be, you know, exterminated. Um, and, and that, that I find that really striking in that, like, this is some, like somebody who their life was so inconsistent that the need, the psychological need to hoard people and things and creatures around her just to stabilize her in the world was how she died, you know? Yeah, just to kind of mass up that weight around you. Yes. Like almost like pin you to the ground, you know? I'm still here. I exist. Yeah. And yet, it's such a heartbreaking... The truth is so sad. The truth is so sad and the fairy tale is so magical. Mm. The fairy tale is so glittering. And they both have to sit together in the same bracket. Yeah. They both feel the same. They both... you need. They're both two sides of the same coin, you know? It's this darkness and light. And they both need each other to live. Inside, outside. It's like, would we really think that much about Henry VIII if he didn't have six wives? Probably not. How much do you think about Henry VII? No, not at all. <laughs> and it's like this, the this, this, the crazy, tragic, odd, womany story of Henry VIII and the six wives is what we need to make the Tudor industry keep going. And similarly, the crazy flip of like the tragic sisters, the imposter, all this. They all need each other for the conversation to keep going, for these things to remain relevant or interesting to people, you know? So many things happen involving men. Yeah. There are so many men in history that I think sometimes, particularly as, like, a little girl, you need to put your pin in being like, there's girls here. There's girls here. The... Yeah, so I remember reading in the new, a new an old New York Times article from just before the Anastasia cartoon came out. And 
It's furious. The, I mean, the mm-hmm. article is really full of despair and angst about how inaccurate the cartoon is. And many people, many people are furious. They're mm. writing into the New York Times. Historians are being like... People are still furious about it. Are they? Yeah. Huh. Mm. There's so much to be mad about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like you could be mad about... So many things. 300 things before you were mad about that. But they are very mad. And they say, sure, this movie might introduce 100,000 little girls to Russian history. Mm-hmm. But nine, I can't remember, 99,000, 99,999 of them will forget it and a thousand of them will remember it, but remember it wrong. Mm. Something like that. And it's like, no, I think those thousand little girls went away and I've just realised how wrong the maths was in that <laughs> adding up. I don't That's care. fine, we all get the, get the point. So many of those thousand little girls went away and were like, now I now I care. Now yeah. I am interested in both this period of history and those big questions. Because the movie is so charming, but it is also very dark. I mean, it doesn't shy away from the darkness of the story. It gives you a happy ending, but Rasputin is is a very scary character. It's all it's like I, I admire the movie so much for judging perfectly how much children can take. The answer to which is more than you think, you know, always more, a little more than you think, you know, that I think to open on this, like on the Russian royal family, on like this young girl, we see everybody there. We are very much told they're all dead and gone by now. Angela Lansbury together in Paris, all this. And then having the Bolsheviks raise that palace and kind of give the sort of spooky, magical explanation that it's like, oh, it's because Rasputin's a wizard and he's bewitched them all and that's why the fall of the Tsars happened. That's, like, I can understand why a scholar of Russian history would be like, that's very offensive. I mean, yeah, but what are you going to do? Be like, children, here's a lesson on feudal surfism. No, exactly. I, I remember reading an interview with Don Bluth and he said, um, I I drew the line at animating Karl Marx. <laughs> I was like, that is a good line to draw. It's like, you have completely, effectively captured the drama and the fear and the sense of, like, a glamorous world, like, crumbling down, of lostness, of trauma. Like, I think if you watch that movie again as an adult and you see all these moments where she is, like, being bewitched by Rasputin and being, like, there's a point where they're on a boat and she is sleepwalking and almost like sleepwalks off the edge of the boat because she thinks she's going swimming with her family and all of her family members are animated exactly how they are in photographs and many parts of the movie are animated exactly as they were in photographs. And there are photographs. And there are photographs. In the photo frames, there are real photographs it, of the it's, Romanov It's very family. spooky, like how much care is taken. And you could really see that as an adult watcher, as like not a Rasputin being spooky and magical, but as a, this is how trauma manifests in people. I think, yeah, I think... The movie does carry a huge sense of that trauma. I mean, not to, not to dwell too much on that boat scene, but it's horrific. The boat is in a storm and two little bad bits of magic land on her sleeping chest as butterflies mm. and in her dreams she follows the butterflies to where her dead family are all playing in a lake, calling to her to come to them. Yeah. 
and begging her to hurry up and come and play and that they're all there and waiting for her. And in reality, she's walking off the edge of the ship. Yeah. As an adult, it is genuinely horrifying. It's horrifying. And like, especially when you think of, again, these are these stories are layers and layers of like, you know, film cells on top of each other kind of thing of like, in the 1997 movie, she's walking off the side of a ship. In the 1956 movie, she opens it trying to walk off a bridge. In the real Anna Anderson story, it almost it begins with her being hospitalized because she tries to kill herself by drowning herself. Like it's this thing of like this constant thing of in every single iteration of the story, no matter how magical or mad or astray far from the truth, it's like this is someone who cannot deal with the burden of what they've been asked to put up with and like needs to drown themselves. <laughs> like yeah, and and this kind of there's something quite symbolic, isn't there, about the kind of the water kind of overwhelming. Yeah. The kind of the water's closing over. There's so much stuff in classical mythology and stuff like the waters of Leith, like the water that makes you forget, the water that yeah. takes you away, the kind of the, the sticks in Greek mythology. There's always rivers taking you to death and there's always kind of rivers, kind of rivers and lakes and waters closing over your head mm-hmm. to indicate both forgetting and trauma and memory loss and pain and death and the kind of ending of trauma and pain. Mm. There's some really big symbolism going on there for little kids for little kids and i loved it i also loved it and i think that was not all about the clothes no i mean the clothes help and the dog helps and the bat helps the men's pajamas the huge coat every outfit is incredible even the kind of bad ones of her in the in the blue dress the belt around it (laughs) then yeah the romance is incredible it's just so good. I think it's the perfect movie. The bangers. Rumor in St. Petersburg is the fucking best opener to any musical. <laughs> I would be inclined to agree. I think also it sets up this whole world. Yeah. Immediately of a society that runs on gossip and rumor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... And we're here dealing with the gossip rumor, you know? And, you know, we are here almost 30 years after the movie comes out being like, what? Of the rumours that were this movie are true rumours mm-hmm. and which are just lies based yeah. on another movie, which is must be a bit based on um, My Fair Lady. Yeah. It must be. You don't have that kind of like... Which itself is a play based on... A film based on the play Pygmalion. Which like... is a play based on a Greek myth. Yeah. And we are intrigued by these stories of transformation It's Cinderella. It's all the other fairy stories as well. We are intrigued by stories of metamorphosis and transformation and things kind of coming back out of the dark. Yeah. And I think also to to make the Cinderella parallel again, it's this thing of um, someone who is helped by glamour, but it's really about who they are and what they know. And with Cinderella, it's like, She's decent. She's lovely. She's like uh, uh, the true sort of the, the, the idea of like the princess and the pea as well. It's like oh, the true spirit of the princess within the graceful kind thing. Whereas with Anastasia, it's about all the things she knows that she has in her brain that you can't see, and sometimes she can't even get at. I tell you what, Car, it's a little princess is what it is. It's a little princess is what it is. A little princess, a true princess, would buy buns. A true princess buys buns. And the reward for that is that you get the princess things. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, like, so much in the story that, like, um, 
it's so funny like the eyewitness accounts of the time of uh, Anna Anderson are like she was so rude and haughty and felt herself to be above everyone that everyone thought yes she must be an aristocrat <laughs> because she's so cunty to everybody <laughs> But that's it again, isn't it? It's about the decorum and the bearing and the kind of... Yeah. It's inner-outer. Inner-outer. In the family, out the family. What are your other favourite bits of the movie? Just because I'm conscious that this might be a little bit of a bummer. So I'm like, what are some fun bits of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love the music box. Because I find the music box to be just like the perfect size trinket to think about. Mm. A music box is a perfect trinket. It's kind of like a locket, which, you know, is also relevant. Yeah. But a music box is a perfect trinket because it fits in, the, in your hand. Mm. It sings a song and you can think about the song all the time and you mm. can sing it in your head when you are frightened. Mm. And you can keep things in it, which is a perfect size treasure for a child. Yes. It's just very covetable. And it's like also the thing of like, it's almost a Fabergé egg, but it's not a Fabergé egg. It's almost a Fabergé egg. I mean, I... I still think about Fabergé eggs all the time. All the time. We couldn't get tickets to the V&A Fabergé egg. So many thing. other people were thinking about Fabergé eggs. I know. I mean, I think if you any, any proof that uh, the Anastasia myth is alive and well in people's hearts and minds is that you could not get into that V&A fucking Fabergé egg exhibit. It's because they're tiny. People love tiny things. I love tiny things. Mm. There is a complete delight in the miniature and the precious and you know some of those Fabergé eggs you know the ones where it just lifts up and it's the whole palace is inside the egg mm. the whole palace is inside the golden egg and I think also it's the sense of having a completely useless tiny object yes very nice <laughs> very nice and this, also with the music box having a very tiny object thing that serves no purpose except the great purpose of proving your true self mm. so good and the whole thing I, I mean the whole sort of Dimitri is a boy rescuing her from the palace and it's like again to go back to Don Bluth realising that how much kids can take is just more than you think a young boy gets pistol whipped by a Bolshevik in the opening five minutes of that fucking movie (laughs) you don't see it but he is fully butted with that rifle while Anastasia escapes through a hole in the door with her grandmother then doesn't get on the train and goes to a fucking orphanage. I mean, I love I love when they're going back through the countryside and she is uh, remembering things from her oh. childhood. Which when is, she's walking back through the palace, when she returns to the palace, that and like to me is a, blowing the dust off the plates and like hearing that, that tinkle going through the do-do-do-do, which is taken from an actual Russian ballet, which is so satisfying to me. I just... I really... I think actually thinking back this is probably where that image for me started mm. is of just like yes. ah, a cloud of dust rises and I see the name yes. underneath which is something I circle around in everything I write is the sense of like what if you blew the dust or something and it went and then you saw it yeah and then you saw you start dancing with your father in the reflection of the plate but then you turned your head which is again it's a really beautiful um, manifestation of like how memory works is that like she picks up this plate there's a glimpse of her dancing with her father in the reflection of the plate but she's already moved on to something else like that's such a beautiful artistic rendering of like how we, none of us are really in control of our own memories of memory and ghosts yeah and I think that's why it feels very relevant and it feels particularly relevant to me to make this a Christmas episode because this is a time of year where there are so many ghosts yeah so many things you kind of 
yeah do at christmas so many traditions you're like oh we did this like that or we're doing it differently mm. now or we used to do it like this with her or this was how it used to be with him and you know i think probably the best times are where you can kind of incorporate those ghosts into your life and you can make them into mm. you can make them into a tradition that is not not stuck but is instead alive and living yeah. and the worst ghosts are this kind of thing that i think so many people feel at this time of year of being like well what is it if it's not that is there anything else we want to say about anastasia either the 2000 the 1987 the 1956 anna anderson the princess herself who died as a teenager or anything between all of these conflicting myths all of which i care about the same amount which is a lot i think what i do want to say is that i don't know that i'd care about any one of these things without all of the others it is very much for you me. You can't care about Catherine of Aragon without caring about Anne Boleyn, without caring about Jane Seymour. You can't. All the women are tied up in one. Yeah. All, all these selves, all these alternative lives get tied up together. And you're going to like this one, but I'm going to bring it back to Christmas again. Yay! <laughs> and I think that is what happens to you. It happens, I think, at most anniversaries or birthdays or and Christmas. These significant points in your life where you get to look at all the different ways your life might have gone and all the mm. different people you used to be and all the people you still might be. Because it lets you check in, like, oh wow, I used yeah. ten years ago it was like this. Yeah, 20 years last ago, Christmas like we this. were doing this and ten Christmases ago we were doing this and Which of course now you... there's a baby and before there wasn't and you know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Know? And of course you can do that like at any time. But at Christmas it's like what were you doing on the 25th of December? Mm. What were you doing every year for your whole life and what are you going to do for the rest of it? And I think it's that braid of identity that makes this so compelling and it makes it, makes it for me a, an ultimate Christmas story because it's about identity and it's about self and it's about time. Time and memory and mm. tradition. And you need all of those yeah. different Annas. You need all of those different Annas to make sense to make sense of the self to make sense of who we are and how we live all of the Annas you're so right because it is like we. it's like it a hundred and something years of this tradition of telling the story and it changes every time and it gets softer every time you know yeah because all of the people involved are dead and they would be dead even if they'd lived long and happy yeah. lives yeah and the further away from it we get the more that's true the further yeah, we go into the future. I don't know. We did like a little toast with our Fox Fizz to Anastasia, but it should have been to all the Annas. To all the Annas. To all the Annas. I love them all. <laughs> I love them all too. I love the cartoon. I love Ingrid Bergman. I love Fran Francisca Chanskowska. I love yeah. Anna Anderson. I love Anastasia Romanoff. Yeah. I love Anastasia, the pop singer who wears those rose-colored glasses. <laughs> And you sang Left Outside Alone, which is in many ways the anthem of this myth. <laughs> I hope all the Sentimental Garbage listeners, as this is the last episode of the year, have a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. And also, you know, maybe consider adopting a brand new identity in 2024. <laughs> like, what else are you doing? Ella, what are you doing? You've got the best Substack in the world. I have. It's ella.substack.com, a name I got very early. I can't believe you got ella.substack.com. I was an early adopter, and then I just uh, sat on it writing, like, occasional weird posts that I immediately deleted oh. for years. And now uh, it's a Substack that I do... Like, professionally? Professionally, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, twice a month, three times a month. At the moment, we're on a real streak of, like, twice a week because it's Christmas and mm. people like to 
feel things at Christmas. Um, uh, if you're like, if you want more of Ella, but also more of this kind of spirit, um, I really recommend the recent Velvet essay, <laughs> <laughs> which is both a shopping guide and just like, just nice just some thoughts, thoughts on velvet and things related to thoughts on velvet, who we become when we wear velvet. Can I personally wear more velvet? Yeah, it's very in theme with this podcast, I think. Great, yeah. Which is that, like, you think you're hearing about a cartoon or a piece of fabric, but actually you're hearing about the whole world and how it fits inside this thing. Which I would think is your great skill and why I love talking to you and I love that you're my best friend. I love being your best friend too! Happy Christmas! (laughs) Happy Christmas, best pal! Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.